Welcome to Game Changers, a video game industry podcast brought to you by Convoy. We're a firm that invests in companies driving the future of the gaming industry. In this podcast, we will go beyond the gaming experience and highlight founders within the gaming space whose businesses and thought leadership sit at the frontier of the industry. I'm Josh Chapman. I'm Jason Chapman. I'm Jackson Vaughn. And we're the founders of Convoy. Each month, one of us is going to bring you a candid and open conversation with leaders in this industry. Who are these game changers? What have they built? And what are they doing now? Let's dig in. Joining us today is Ralph Reichart, who is considered a founding father of esports, having shaped the industry for the past 20 years as an entrepreneur. Ralph and his team co-founded ESL on a quest to build the largest stages for a new sport that turned players into stars worldwide. What was intended to be a quick win evolved into a lifelong journey. ESL has become the largest esports brand and company, culminating in a billion-dollar transaction in 2022 to form the ESL Facet Group, EFG. Ralph is an active angel investor and primarily serves as a chairman of at EFG on the mission to create worlds beyond gameplay where esports and gaming collide. Welcome to the show, Ralph. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me and fantastic intro. I can, I'll, I'll copy and paste that. Absolutely. It's yours to keep. It's yours to keep. We love starting off the podcast asking our guests, what are you playing right now? So I'm super boring because, you know, I come from competitive gaming. That means I don't change games a lot. I primarily play Clash Royale because I'm working quite a lot these days. So it always depends. Unless I work, the more I play Dota, which is my primary favorite game. And the more I work, the more I play Clash because it's shorter matches. You can do it in between. It doesn't take these big chunks and blocks of time. And then I'm really bad at trying single player games. I'm, I'm disastrous at it. I haven't played a lot of the games that are considered must play. When I had some free time the other week, I started playing GTA V for the first time in my life, which is, wow. I know, blasphemy. But I listened to a podcast before about it. And, and now whenever I have this 30 minutes waiting for something, I'll turn it up and play it. And it's I mean, there's a good reason why it's considered one of the best games ever made, right? What are you playing GTA on? PC? PC, I mean, um, PC first, uh, whenever I can. I'm glad to hear that that's the case. All right, well, can you tell me a little bit about sort of your early days, your personal background, kind of how you became interested in video games? Sure, I mean, I'm born 1974, so I had kind of the privilege to be very early in, in, let's call it, that industry as a consumer, not as someone working, but as a consumer. I had my first Atari console at the age of six. My neighbor already had a... A VC20, I think, before that even. And we, so very early in the 80s, I was exposed to video games through my private life, through my friends, and actually because my parents supported it. So growing up with video games is today is the most normal thing on the planet, right? Our kids do. But was still very early, I'd say probably up until even 10 years ago, up until mobile took that big chunk of the market. I was two, three generations ahead. And I was not the only one, don't get me wrong, but we were we were a small bunch. So that meant video games was a normal entertainment format for all my life. So saying that, my parents still made sure that video games were not all my life. <laughs> so, right, the balance between actually our traditional things to do, which is school, sports, friends, cinema... 
was kept intact and I used to compete a lot in traditional sports. I had two younger brothers who were part of that competitive journey, both on the computer and out on the pitch. So mingling this all together, I could enjoy the youth pretty similar to what my kids can do these days in competing in video games, but as well on outside pitches, which are traditional sports. What games are your kids playing right now? And are you playing any of those games with them? <laughs> so it's a funny mix, right? I mean, I have a son and a daughter, and the daughter is mostly playing Roblox, which I'm not the perfect age group for, so let me put it like this, and Star Stable. So my <laughs> video game interaction with her is limited, to be honest. My son plays Rocket League and Escape the Back Rooms and Jedi Survivor and Fortnite, and actually I played some Quake with him as well. So with him I play regularly, still too little, and actually a little bit sad about it because theoretically we could spend so much time playing together. I find Rocket League to be one of the most infuriating and frustrating yet rewarding games in the market. It is so hard to master. It's, it really is truly a perfect esport in a lot of ways. It's easy to enter, impossible to master. It's amazing. I believe it's still one of the most underrated games, even though it's uh, obviously hyper successful. Let's touch on esports and the concept and history around it. You know, how did this get on your radar? Obviously, this is how gaming entered your life early, but how did the concept of esports start with you? And then how did you kind of think about the scene when you were getting into it for the first time? I'd say there was playing video games pre internet and post internet, and a little bit like you do in any other activity where you can compete. International karate or micro-pro soccer or even the very, very early FIFAs were video games which just friends would compete in. NHL 94 was one of our big platforms back in the days. It was esports, right? It wasn't called like that. It wasn't not even, no one had came up with that term, but we competed in video games. And even if you go one step back, right, everything is based on play. Kids start to play, and once you give playing some rules, it becomes a game. And once it gets about winning and losing and gets some structure, it becomes sport. That's the natural progression from just playing to gaming to competing. That same history was obviously, if you look back, was clear that it's going to happen to video games as well, which is the digital form of playing. Therefore, it naturally happened that we were competing in video games. And then in the late 90s, I was going to university. 96, Quake was released and it actually had an online version and the internet was there for me. And there was an online community based around the internet relay chat called IRC, which is basically what Discord is today to some extent, right? And there were first a few hundred and then a few thousand people out of Germany competing in that video game called Quake. And then they played for fun and then tournaments started and the league started. And as I said, right, I was first playing, then it was competing slash gaming, and then it became a sport by creating structure. Those structures were still very nascent. They were very amateurish. But we loved it. So my brothers, my friends and me founded a team, right? That was the vehicle you would do. It's called Clan. Nowadays called SK Gaming, then was called Schrödkommando, which is the original name. And we started to compete on those tournaments. And we pretty quickly became among the best in Germany and then moved on and became among the best in Europe. And uh, then moved on to become among the best in the world. 
This was so much fun. I traveled so much many countries with this. I became friends with so many people from different backgrounds and countries and languages. It was one of the best experiences of my life, to be honest. But it wasn't a job, right? There was no professional infrastructure. There was no nothing. Both of my brothers were, at the same time, fairly successful football players, soccer players. We're around 1998, 1999, 2000. They had more and more the necessity to choose if I go to an esports tournament, a quake tournament this weekend, or if I do a football game. And they actually had to do the final decision. What do I prioritize? And they went on to for football because that was by far the bigger career. That was where the money was. That was where actually the fame was. And back at that time, video games were stigmatized most across society. So being the best in a video game did not really qualify you to be hyper cool. So anyway, I finished university in 2000, exactly around that time. It all culminated. And I met a bunch of guys who were running a gaming company in Cologne, Germany. And they wanted to go big in esports. They did content and game servers and a lot of other things. Among them, Jens Hilgers, who you know is a colleague of yours uh, running Bitcraft, who was kind of the guy behind it, really. Another guy called Alexander Müller, who runs SK Gaming these days. So that group was, you know, hey, we want to double down on esports as well, or on competitive gaming, or on actually cyber gaming, I think how it was called back then. And they asked me to join, and, and, and that's where the journey started. And the idea, the vision, the mission was very clearly, okay, my brothers left me for good, for this stupid thing called football. Let's make sure that the next generation of gamers can actually choose on an equal footing and not, you know, it's not an, an, a one-sided decision, number one. And number two, that they actually got celebrated and recognized by society as being someone who is exceptionally talented and can do something other people can't, rather than being stigmatized for wasting their time with video games. And that was the start of the journey. And that's a journey I'm kind of still on. And that's the journey of, of video games becoming the largest media in the world and esports to become one of the largest, if not the largest sport in the world, which we're still quite a bit away from, but have done quite some progress since we started 25-ish years ago. You all said, hey, we want to double down on esports. We want to think about forming a league of some kind or an environment through which people can kind of realize this future. What were some of those initial challenges and what were those early days like? The core challenge is there was nothing. Right? I mean, literally everything was missing. So let's start with the game itself. The games were just starting to get netcode and being able to be played over the internet, which was still a scarce resource. Number two, the games didn't have matchmaking functions like today, right? This was all outside of the game. This was actually one of the opportunity we captured, that we basically built the dating website for, for matchmaking, for people trying to compete and play, play against each other and rankings and tournaments and all that functionality, which nowadays is a lot of times part of the games. But back then, there was zero functionality on this. And topic number three was obviously, you know, watching the games, there was little to no opportunity for live streaming, right? This was pre-YouTube. This is pre-Twitch, 10 years before this all started. So making it available as a spectator sport was 
another big challenge. And last but not least, there was no media for it. There was no press for it. The traditional media wouldn't report about it like in any traditional sport. Even social media wasn't really invented back then, right? So again, that was Facebook was started in 2006 and Twitter same time. So a lot of what today is a natural infrastructure for us has been kind of developed over that time. So we had to mitigate a lot of those things, including the business model for the video games, right? Back then it was still boxed. So the interest of a developer was to sell as much as they can in the first eight weeks. And after that, it was mostly irrelevant. Literally Blizzard was Warcraft 3 and Starcraft were the only one who kind of had long-term community management and approach. So most of the games kind of moved on from their communities pretty quickly to sell the next one, while there was only a handful, very few, Counter-Strike, the Blizzard games, to, who became generational hits. Man, you had a lot of uphill battles to fight, you know, infra, <laughs> which is it's a good reminder even for me, you know, where a lot of the things that you're touching on are things that we take for granted, you know, sophisticated matchmaking, abundance of internet space and time. These are things that weren't available when esports was getting off the ground and things that you had to to work around. Were there any moments on the journey where you thought this is it. This is going to fail. Is there any stark moment that you hit the ultimate valley of despair as an entrepreneur as you were building? Being unsure of the journey is part of the journey. And failure and mistakes are part of every entrepreneur's journey. So there's probably something in every time and every year of that journey which hits it. And in 2000, we did our first tournament. I remember December 2000. And we had big power issues. So the infrastructure of the venue wasn't working. Disaster, right? In 2001, we actually got a lot of successes, but we couldn't monetize it not at all, but very, very little. So monetization was a big problem. And actually, the party we worked on producing the video signal, which was like an early internet TV channel, went broke. So we lost our distribution. And we re reinvented the model. We actually started to sell live streaming slots in an eBay auction kind of things. We had 510 slots and actually made some decent money on it, right? Selling them for a few bucks each. But the total opposite model of what's out there today, right? Where it's about reach, that was about refinancing. In 2003, we went with our league structure, which was happening all in Cologne, to go all over Germany. And in one place, Leipzig, that's 10 people showing up. In 2004, we did our first Gamescom, which actually we had lots of challenges with the German youth law for video games and couldn't show a big game, which we wanted to show on stage. So very operational, tactical, strategic things. Up until 2008, when the financial crisis hit, right up, our budget from 8 to 9 went 30% down, which was a near-death moment in terms of financial stability. And in 2010, we did probably our tournament with the biggest budget and only a few hundred people showed up. Our biggest tournament in 2012 was CBIT, but then CBIT as a tra consumer trade show kind of diminished and so on and so forth. So change facing near-death situations and adapting and developing the product and the approach to the market was something that was always very, very rough on us. 
Yeah, you're not the first entrepreneur that we've chatted with that says, you know, looking back on it, I don't know what I was thinking when I decided to embark on this journey. But obviously, at the end, the reward is itself amazing, just the experience and the journey itself. How did you think about this concept as you were building to try to culminate all of the limited at the time traction of esports into ESL and to not splinter into a thousand little leagues that were localized and never really gained any sort of you know, significant viewership or player base? I think in the very, very beginning, 2000 to probably 2010 and 12, we tried to be the most efficient company. What I mean by that is our goal was always, we'll produce a content cheaper than anyone else, we'll make more out of your sponsorship money, will be the one where you get the biggest bang for the buck. And that was through lean cost structure, through smart business, through smart and cheap content production. And that was why, because our cost of capital as a German company back in that days was much higher than that of an American company. So we were totally okay with being the number three brand or number four brand in the industry as long as we didn't need to raise money to run our products, but were humble and stingy. So that was a lot of our DNA back then, because let's be honest, the market wasn't there and we kind of knew it for whatever reason. We were pre-market. If I would do this again, I would always say to every esports entrepreneur, start in 2010. That's when this hits off. And then we became a little bit lucky because in that time, 2010, actually most of our competitors were so deep in in raising and the finance they brought that they were at the end of their lifeline. So, I mean, if you think about it, looking back, ESWC, MLG, NASL, IPL, and plenty of other small ones, clan base and so on of the force, all went away being acquired, being closed down somewhere between 2008 and 2012. While we actually, from literally 2010 on, went on the biggest run of our life. The years 2010 to 2016 was a home run. We were there, right? We had the knowledge, we had the people. And actually, then we got the financing. When everyone was drowning, we were like, we'll take it all. And we went never before for brand. And that was a time when we went for brand and market share. And literally grew from $10 million revenue to 100 in four or five years. So that was our biggest growth time. And I think the model we doubled down on was, number one, will be the biggest partner of publishers to build this as a production business. That was a super important piece of the puzzle. But at the same time, we are going out and trying to build our own IP because we believe that this is the cheapest way for us to build a brand, to build great products, actually. And we believe that there is a need outside of an independent tournament organizer to be there as a destination and partner for the big publishers and developers. We doubled down on our own brand. We've been successful, very focused on building the most relevant game agnostic brand, while at the same time building assets wherever possible, including those fixed events and tournaments. 
it's interesting you point out the concept of not being a traveling circus because that is definitely how I think of many of the other kind of tournament providers or event organizers. They sort of take that model, whereas, you know, ESL, you're so right, I've never thought about it that way, really was sort of the stable, it's coming back every year, you can count on this location, we're going to be here, you should come too. So I actually love that that phrasing and that approach. Segwaying a little bit you now to the next chapter of ESL, so obviously you rode the success of the 2010s, you built this to a the empire that it is today. When did the concept of this acquisition really come to your attention and why did you think this was a good time to sell ESL into a larger parent organization? So the core idea was never to sell it in the first place. I always believed that if we want to succeed and when we need to be a, have a clear positioning and either you're a very local player or the biggest globally. I don't think there's much in between to winning in the end of the day. And we went aggressively starting in 16 to become the global number one. And that includes to continue on that journey. So it was clear that we're a little bit doomed for growth in a good way. So the question was, what are the big players out there? What are our strengths and our weaknesses? And what makes sense as a combination? And that's how we ended up with merger talks with Faceit, who were the largest online platform, right? It's actually full circle in 2000 to 2006. That was our core business. We went more in the esports content business after that, or that became dominant. We had it before. But anyway, that, that was by far the largest player behind us, so to speak, next to it. And they had a unique strength and a management team we know forever. Nicolo is a, is a partner in crime forever. And our majority shareholder, MTG, had an interest to, to kind of split the company. And it was originally the idea to sell games and keep esports. And that would have been an idea as well to get face it in there. We had merger talks, but the idea was actually never to sell it with our core shareholder. It was either to keep it within MTG or to bring it public. We hired JP Morgan and went into that. Let's set up that three-way merger. And we spoke to, I don't know, 50 or so, right? I did it three times. And every time I came out much smarter than when we started the process. Savvy was being built exactly at that point in time. And they came in super late into the process and showed very strong interest. We initially thought of them more as a pipe partner, right, as part of the spec process. But then they came in and said, look, we want to double down on video games as a, a regional and global player. And we strongly believe in esports. And we want to make this much bigger than you even think. Um, why don't you sell it to us? And why don't you give it to our hands to make it 10 times bigger than it is right now. The negotiations go, it wasn't straightforward, was obviously complicated as well, but it ended up being being what it is when they announced the deal in early 2022 and the rest is history. How did you get comfortable with the concept of sort of letting it go to a third party to sort of come in and operate, which, you know, if I was putting myself in your shoes, that would be difficult, something that I've devoted either the majority or a very solid portion of my life too. The most interesting and the most challenging part of it was that it's so complex. It's life entertainment to a large extent. It has so many stakeholders. It's really about getting 10 things happening at the same time. Then you have magic. A little bit like a marketplace if you really think about it. And that has been been a big thing. And I've been doing it for 25 years. And I think I we brought it to a level where it's positioned as 
a relevant sport. It's out there, right? The uphill battle is done. It's recognized. It's not the largest yet, right? So there's some room to grow. Number two, I didn't see myself being an, a CEO for another 20 years and running a day-to-day operational company. So actually, the successor logic and setup has been been in the works for a while. Craig Levine, which you know, you know, who's a co-CEO now, good friend. I ran the company with him before. He was my perfect partner in crime and then successor. And was Niccolo. There came in another talent. So, so actually, it was the right time to have... Management set up for success, both because of where the company is positioned, because of who they are, and because of what we did the years before. It was not hard to let go because I think it was set up for success. It was set up for misconception. They're not, and it was not the majority shareholder at that point in time, right? So it's it's a twenty plus year venture story, right? So my my percentage was limited, so to speak, and it was time for something for change of perspective. I I miss it. I love it. But I'm super happy with a different perspective as well. And I'm not gone. That is the beauty of it, right? I'm I'm as close as I want to be. I'm here because I want to be, not because I have to be. That's a really interesting way to think about it. It's your your time to to segue out because you chose to, right? And kind of the, the ownership burden, I think, that you're highlighting, which a lot of operators definitely feel where things will not move forward if you don't move it forward. There is no other line of defense. You are the last line. And that kind of shifting that that mentality from, I'm going to coach and still support as you still do for ESL and face it and ESG, the, the joint group, but you're not having to be the last line of defense. You're, you're supporting that last line. By the way, when was that moment in your growth process where you met somebody that worked for you that you didn't know? Because that was probably <laughs> an interesting moment for you. Good question. Good. I mean, it happened all along, right? That you had new people coming in, but but that you stop knowing the, the large majority pretty late, I would even say. It's probably somewhere around when we integrated DreamHack. That was, I think, 2019. That was the tipping point where we became clearly over 500 people. If you had told me five years ago that ESL was going to sell into a parent company that is headquartered in Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. I would have found that shocking. But today, you know, five years later, you're in 2023, that isn't surprising at all given the move that they've made into large entertainment, whether that's through golf or video gaming. What has your experience been like working with the region that maybe doesn't have the DNA of gaming? Mm -hmm. And what are maybe some misconceptions you think that most gamers and specifically probably the West and the gaming community have of this region? We've been first in so many things because we had to, right? Because there was no opportunity that, that we feel comfortable in that situation to break norms. Starting a company to run video games as a sport in 2000 is breaking a norm. We started with working with Saudi Arabia on a project called Gamers Without Borders very early. Actually, we talked to them in 1819. We worked on Gamers Without Borders in, I think, 20 and 21. It became Gamers 8. And we we started to know the people and we started even to know some of the leadership. Prince Faisal is the face of the esports industry there. I had the pleasure of getting to know him very early. And in the end of the day, there's things you can trust in. It's institutions, it's values, and it's people. 
The crown prince himself just said on a Fox interview, what do you do at night? He said, look, you know, I play video games because that is the thing I like most. If you are in a country which has this kind of DNA and this kind of mindset, there are things you can do with video games and esports you can't do anywhere else in the world. It's people playing video games all the time and it's dramatically looking forward and embracing our industry more than most others, plus that they have the opportunity to diversify their industry into, into video games. And ESL, Scopely, Face It, the whole story is the manifestation of it. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that there's a lot of secular trends that are very bullish for the MENA region in games. You know, the population's one you highlighted. I think culturally they've been gamers for a long time, and we're seeing that kind of just get to the front stage, right? And I see ESL, Face It, Scopely just being kind of the tip of the spear of what is to come. Tell us a little bit about what's catching your eye today. What are you interested in? What's keeping you up at night where you're like, I have to be part of this? You said you're working harder than ever, but what's catching your eye? today? I think and look a little bit outside of the box, which is hard, right? Because the failure rate is higher. Success will be bigger then, but let's see that in the future. And number four, probably people which I like and I can help and I can, you know, be be a good mentor to. The, let's call it the, the trend, the sector I'm looking is always games and sports. And I try to be somewhere at the intersection of it, right? Because that's the two things I like and I kind of know, right, esports being exactly in that middle. So there is probably where I can bring the most value, but I'm not intending to be a full-time angel investor and see this. Because the minute you see this as your core, the minute you need and want to make money with it, your decision-making is going to be more professionalized. And I deliberately want it to be a little bit humanized and a little bit interest-based where this very commercially driven. Was there a resource, an activity, a book, a podcast, or any sort of resource that was very helpful to you in your journey over the years that you sort of went back to time and time again, or was just helpful to you in a moment? I would love to hear whatever was helpful to you in in the difficulties and kind of the, the scaling of your business. I mean, it's so many things, but the most important thing was that we were purpose driven. That's the only reason why we endured the pain. If we weren't, you know, believing super deeply in the why and making this the largest sport in the world, we would absolutely not be here. I think point number two, from good to great, yes. And the hard thing about hard things are the two by far favorite books I've read. Hands down, I would always read them again. I will quote them all the freaking time. I will go back to wartime CEO over this peacetime CEO. By the way, I'm a peacetime CEO. You know, many, many times I actually met Ben last year, this year. So I was super excited about that. And then there's the quiet podcast I love a lot because it gives such a good perspective on strategy and on, on history. Probably last but not least, and probably most important, without the right mentors, without the right people at the right time, they totally changed, right? It was super different. I, I just thought with our, this week, last week, I actually had coffee with our original angel investor in 2000. And he was super helpful for, for many, many years. And he helped us above and beyond of what he was financially incentivized for. And we had many, many stakeholders in the industry who, it's funny, I met on Gamescom, I met a guy from, who used to work at Activision, and he said, Ralph, actually, one of the most amazing things I've seen in my life, how you and your team have convinced us 
as the German games publisher representatives to support esports and to help you to be successful and to help you give you licenses without us ever paying money or ever setting any necessary or unnecessary intentions by just being so bullish on your purpose. It's unbelievable. So, so these people who will believe in you because you are determined to fulfill your purpose and they just help you because they like that determination and you can call them mentors, you can call them friends, whatever it is, you wouldn't be here without all of those people. I love that perspective and I love that mission-driven founder, right? I think that does absolutely help spur you through tough times because if money is the only thing motivating you at the end of the outcome, there's a lot of ways you can make money. But if you're making money in potentially the way that something that you value and something that you want to see the world change to morph to, that's a pretty powerful force. And so I love that you've highlighted sort of the purpose-driven founder. Reminds me of a book I read, Purpose Driven Life, which I love that sort of mantra as as a person. Mm -hmm. Well, Ralph, Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your insights. Uh, We really, really appreciate you coming on on the podcast with us and looking forward to hopefully hosting you again in the not so distant future. Thank you. And thank you for helping all these young entrepreneurs, uh, you know, building billion dollar companies, hopefully. So that is, you're doing a good purpose. That's the goal. All right. Thanks, Ralph.